In the late 1940s, Jim Elliott was a student at Wheaton College, and he felt this sense of God, this call from God to go and be a missionary. So he, in, in, in 1950, was going through his training. He was doing, learning his languages, linguistic studies, and he met a visiting missionary who told him about the Huarani tribe in Ecuador. Now, some of you, if you've heard the story, you've probably heard the, the, the name. It's somewhat pejorative that the visiting missionary called them the, the Aka people. The word Aka is a pejorative title that meant savage, and it was used by... Um, a lot of the neighboring tribes surrounding the Hurani people in Ecuador. The Hurani were known to be very violent, very dangerous, and territorial to outsiders. But Jim's heart in this moment burned with desire for this people, that they would learn of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it was decided Jim was going to travel to Ecuador. He was going to fulfill this missionary calling. And he spent the next few years getting rooted in the culture of Ecuador, sharing the gospel with the, the Quechua Native Americans in the vicinity of, of Quito. Quito actually is the city that we sponsor, support some missionaries. Um, here's a church, Quito, Ecuador. But, but even as he was kind of in the mainstream culture there of Ecuador, this desire for the Huarani people continued to burn within him. So in 1955, Jim Elliott with four other men traveled to the outskirts of the Hurani region, and over the next few months, they used the loudspeaker of their airplane to speak messages and words of peace and encouragement. They would, um, you know, pass gifts to the Hurani people down the river trying to build a rapport and relationship. And after a number of months of this, they made contact with uh, a small group of Hurani, they actually even gave an airplane ride to one of them, whom they, they named George. They thought that this relationship had developed. But on January 8, 1956, they were met by 10 Hurani warriors who killed the five men. Jamelli was 20, 28 years old when he was killed. Elliot's widow, Elizabeth Elliot, continued to work in Ecuador and even sought new opportunities to share the gospel with the Hurani people the same people who had killed her husband. Many have found hope and encouragement, courage in the forgiveness that was marked by the work of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. How is it that Jim was willing to put himself at risk for the sake of the gospel, to share the gospel with the tribe of Native Americans that everybody else avoided? What would propel Elizabeth to continue Jim's work, putting herself and her young daughter at risk as she looked for inroads to the gospel, as she expressed words of forgiveness to those who had attacked her husband. I have to tell you, I find a lot of this story and a lot of what we're going to look at this morning foreign to my own experience and my own perspective. But both Jim and Elizabeth Elliot held the call of the gospel higher than their own lives. Jim was famous for quote, being quoted saying, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And if you're interested in their story, Elizabeth Elliot wrote an autobiography called Through Gates of Splendor that's a, just a beautiful story of, of faith and forgiveness. 
If you'd pull your Bibles out this morning with me, um, we're going to look at the next part of chapter 1 in Philippians together. And, and we're going to see this, this ethic of kind of holding reputation and life loosely, as Paul expresses in his letter as he writes to the Philippians. So this is Philippians 1, verses 12 and 26. He says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So we're going to look at this in two major sections. You have verses 12 through the first half of 18, and there's usually a, a pretty natural break in the, the English translations. And then it picks up again at the second half of verse 18 through 26. So last week we saw Paul's introduction where he laid out the theme for this letter. I've summarized it as the joy of service to God and to one another. The joy, there's so much about joy of service, humbling ourselves, putting the needs of God, putting the needs of others before our own. And after that introduction, he opens with the body of the letter. Verse 12 begins, I want you to know that. Now this would have raised the, the kind of... Uh, eyebrows of the, the hearers or, or, or perked the ears of the hearers. Because in the Roman culture of letter writing, this phrase was used to signify moving from an introduction to the crucial part of the text of the letter. And remember, this is a letter. This isn't like he wasn't writing a manual. He was writing a personal letter to the Philippians, people he loved. Paul turns his attention to the pressing issue at hand. What is going to happen to Paul in the midst of his imprisonment? The Philippians had sent a monetary gift to Paul to help care for his needs, and a thank you was sent back in the form of this letter. 
And so this is what the Philippians wanted to know. They wanted to know, right? Like, what's the scuttlebutt? What's going on with Paul? How's he faring in prison? Does he think he's going to be released anytime soon? And so Paul breaks his response into two different categories. And in this first section, he explains how his circumstances have advanced the gospel. The second, as we'll look at in a few minutes, provides two possibilities. Either he is going to die, be executed, or he's going to be released. That's what he is facing. Now, after last week, I felt that I shared a a bit too much of of the Greek. I I don't know, I I nerd out a little bit on things that people are like uh, rolling their eyes at. Um, I I have a friend who says, uh, sorry, if this is, is, uh, I don't know, too risque, but he says that Greek is like underwear, Everybody, like every pastor should know it, right? You should wear it, but not everybody needs to see it. But sorry, you're seeing, you're seeing my, my Greek underwear again today. Um, the word here in Greek that's important is the word uh, uh, prokopen. And it's, it's usually translated as uh, to progress, to advance. And you see that in verse 12, and then it'll come up again in verse 25. They're kind of like bookends to our section. That's why it's important. The word literally means chopping down in front of. It describes advancing by chopping down, bulldozing, right? Whatever is impeding progress, removing it so that you can advance. And so Paul is saying that his imprisonment is actually having the effect of advancing the gospel. And verse 13, it brings clarity to this. He says that the whole imperial guard knows why he's in chains, that he's there because of Jesus Christ. Paul's had opportunities, you know, while he's sitting at his desk writing, and he's, you know, literally chained to a guard. He's, he's had, he's had a, 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 a captive audience. He might be the captive, but he's got a captive audience to share about Jesus, the story of Jesus, all right, about this Jewish rabbi who was killed and who has come back to life. Now, the text doesn't say whether any of these guards or any of the Roman officials put their trust in Jesus, whether they believed the gospel, But Paul has witnessed to them, right, that this Jesus Christ was worth it to Paul to lose his freedom in order to proclaim the message. And you can see this in in narrative form in the book of Acts, right, where Paul, he he appeals to Caesar. He's arrested, and he kind of moves up the, the, uh, the political food chain, given opportunities to share the story of Jesus with all these Roman officials. But that's not it. That's not all. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the brothers and sisters in the faith are becoming bolder about sharing their faith. Now, you might think that the opposite would be true, right? This guy's arrested for speaking his mind about Jesus. We better hush up. We better hunker down. We better, you know, wait for it to pass. But instead, it has the opposite effect. They are more daring. They are fiercer in their proclamations of Christ. Paul has inspired them These Christians were sharing the gospel of Jesus at great risk to their physical and social lives. But they were were renewed by the example of Paul and increased their fervor. And I want to pause here and, and have us consider this. Because truth be told, we live in a society where we would not experience any of the same repercussions of Paul. I know some folks like to talk about how much the church is persecuted, but we we don't know persecution compared to what Christians over the millennium have suffered. Really about the worst that would happen to us is a little social stigma for being a, you know, Jesus freak, to use the words of 
90s band DC Talk. If the message of Jesus was so powerful that Paul and these other brothers and sisters in the Roman Empire, that they were willing to put aside their safety and security, putting aside their freedoms to share it, what might we be missing that we don't appear to have the same passion, the same fervor? And this is an indictment on me as as much as anyone else. Why am I so quick to bite my tongue and not share the good news, right? Because that's what gospel means, good news. If I believe it to be good news, why am I not sharing that news with others? What is it that I'm afraid of? Something for us to ponder. Now, before Paul gets to his next steps about prison, he takes an aside and he compares and contrasts two groups of Christians and how they share the message, right? Some are preaching the gospel from poor motivation. Others are preaching it from a good place, a right place. Those who are wielding the message in an, in an unworthy manner are doing it to try to hurt Paul. The text isn't explicit of how this is being done. It could be that they're trying to hurt his reputation or maybe they're disparaging his message, being like, you know, it's clearly, he's not very good at this. Otherwise, why would God have allowed him to be arrested? I, we, we don't know. It's all conjecture. But the point of the passage is that there are those who are using their declarations of the gospel as a way to wound Paul. And you know what Paul says about it? He says, I don't care. He says, haters going to hate. He says, I'm just glad that the gospel is being preached. Now, a real quick clarification here. Like, before we look at a closer, you know, look at Paul's attitude, right? This, this, this isn't a false gospel that's being preached. There are plenty of other places in Scripture, like the, the, the letter to the Galatians where he denounces uh, the Judaizers, saying, like, you've got to do all these, you know, go cross all these hurdles in order to be able to be actually a Christian. And he says that's not, that's not uh, the gospel message at all. Like, that's a false gospel. And so it, there's a difference here that, of, between what Paul is saying between a the, the communication of the gospel with impure motives and a false gospel altogether. That, that he's not addressing the false gospel here. And, and even in this exchange with Paul, just because Paul is celebrating it, you know, it doesn't mean that the poor motivations don't matter or are irrelevant. What it means is that Paul is just not focused on himself. He's focused on God and what is advancing the kingdom of God. And so the result is that that both groups, both the good and the bad, are preaching Christ, and that's something that Paul can rejoice in. Now, this is relevant for us. I know this is relevant for me, right? Do you rejoice in the gospel proclamation of your, quote-unquote, rivals? I mean, you could think about this geographically. You could think about this denominationally. Do we treat nearby churches as if it were a competition? Treating faith like a zero-sum game, meaning that in order for us to succeed, in order for us to win, we've got to increase and have success, and that means that others have to decrease. What about those churches who have different theology than yours? Do Presbyterians rejoice when Baptists have their victories? Do Methodists rejoice when Roman Catholic numbers swell? I mean, what are the limits of this? I find Robert Jeffress to be very distasteful. But I don't know that I can say that he's preaching a false gospel. He's got a lot of problems in his theology. Should I be celebrating what he, he is sharing? 
Those are questions that we have. I, here, here's another one to throw out to you, just, just that, that's relevant. So if, if I, I spent a lot of time walking uh, in Swissvale here. Uh, if you walked by the Presbyterian Church there, which, you know, I know, I know their pastor, Deb uh, Warren, she's a, a, a good woman. Uh, but they, you know, they started having outdoor movie nights. And they just had one last night. And you know what I have? I have this like tinge of jealousy. I'm like, dude, we've been doing this for like three or four years but they've got prime real estate. People just pass through, right? And, and so the, it, it's easy to get this competitive spirit as opposed to rejoicing that there, maybe someone found that movie night and is able to find a community there. And it might not be with us, and that's okay because the kingdom is advancing. I don't have nice cookie-cutter answers for those questions, but what I'm confident that the text says is that in all of their efforts against Paul, The enemies of Paul were doing exactly the one thing that mattered most to him. They were preaching the gospel. And so he was able to shrug off the haters. He was able to rejoice in their fruitfulness, even with bad motives, because Christ was being proclaimed. And I find that personally very convicting, because we live in an age where we all like to draw boundary markers everywhere of who's in and who's out. Paul gives a, a, a great concrete example of what it means to value the church, not a particular church, but the church, the universal church, to value the church over self, that the kingdom of God is more important than any personal accolades. Let's move on to the second section where Paul lays out his options for the future. Paul, Paul thanks the Philippians for the prayers that they've offered on his behalf. And these prayers, he says, he knows will turn out for his deliverance. Now, deliverance doesn't mean that Paul knows he's going to be spared death. I mean, any statements in this section that might speak to otherwise, it's, it's in statements of faith, it's conjecture. We see in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, that Paul acknowledges that execution is still a very real possibility. But deliverance here means that regardless of the outcome, he knows he's going to be steadfast. He knows he's going to be faithful that he will successfully endure whatever trial lies ahead. Paul doesn't know for sure whether he will live or die, but he knows for certain that the gospel is being preached and will advance. And what follows in verse 21, it's a famous passage here quoted a lot, for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does this mean? For Paul, life means the faithful pursuit of Christ. His entire existence is wrapped up in Jesus. If he is to go on living and breathing, he will live and breathe for the sake of the kingdom of God as it's revealed in Christ. If he is to die, that's gain because it provides the closest possible union with Jesus. So whether Paul lives or dies, he's with the Lord. Now, in our culture of safety, I know that might seem a bit morbid. There are points where Paul seems to be inviting this opportunity to die. I mean, verse 23, Paul says that his preference, right, if he got to choose which of those two options, he he would choose death. And that's because Paul had a vision for life after life after death, in the words of N.T. Wright. Right? Not only was death not the end result, but that even a disembodied, you know, soulful experience with God was not the end. He believed that just as Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, so too would he. This could be seen in the language that he uses here. Verse 23, when he says that his preference is death, he says his desire is to depart 
to be with Christ. And that word depart, it's a very, very mild word for death. It's a word that was used of a ship, you know, like weighing anchor, lifting its anchor. It's a temporary stop of life is removed to continue on with that real journey. Suggests Paul's hope for the resurrection. I mean, elsewhere in the scriptures, he uses the metaphor of sleeping as a, as a euphemism for death. They're not, they're not really dead. They're just, they're sleeping, that they will rise again when this nap is over. Even though death has gained, Paul's hunch is that he's going to stick around because it, he, it is necessary. It's what's necessary for the Philippians. His work is not done yet. Verse 25, we see the other bookend for that word progress, that Paul's circumstances and imprisonment have advanced the gospel, as we saw in uh, verse 12. So too will his release progress, advance the gospel in the lives of the Philippians in verse 25. This is interesting, because remember that, that theme, right? The joy of service to God and one another. Here, Paul might not feel like it for us, but Paul arguably is taking the sacrificial route by advocating for his life instead of death. He's putting the needs of the Philippians and their needs for his physical presence over his own preference to be with Christ. Now, it's easy for us to read words on a page like this, divorced from our experience, but what do these passages mean for our lives? In our age, we do everything that we can to stave off the certainty of death. Paul's embrace of it seems to be somewhat morbid, We focus religiously on diet and exercise. We spend thousands on miracle pills or plastic surgery, all trying to prolong our bodies from its natural breakdown. So how do the words of Paul and his breath, his embrace of death, move 2,000 years to to us in our lives? Now, last week when we were worshiping, I had this kind of contrast, this dichotomy that came to mind. So last week, if you were here, we sang the song, Peace Be Still. It's another song that I love. And Sarah shared how Jesus, you know, provided peace through security and provision to the disciples in the midst of the storm, right? That's Mark, Mark 4. The disciples are on a boat. A huge squall overtakes the boat, and they're worried they're going to drown, and so they approach Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? He's, he's perfectly content. He is napping in the back. I don't know how he was napping with all, you know, that up and down, uh, but, uh, but he was napping in the back, and the disciples are panicked. Don't you care that we're going to die, Jesus? They needed God to come through and deliver them from the storm. And Sarah made the comment that they were safe because they were with Jesus, and Jesus wasn't going to let anything happen to them. Now, I I had this sermon, this message, knowing what was coming next in view while we're singing this song. Paul's willingness to embrace execution for the sake of the gospel, and it created a paradox for me. Something happened that these same disciples who were cowering at the storm and the threat it entailed, were later in life able to courageously stand up to their persecutors as they were brutally beaten and that they were tortured and killed. What is it that changed that Peter, who felt this need of self-preservation in the garden, right, he drew his sword, cut off the, the servant Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. He was ready to defend himself in the garden, later goes weaponless to be crucified upside down on a cross because he can't He doesn't even feel worthy enough to be crucified like Jesus, upright. Surely Jesus was no less with the disciples when they were maimed and murdered for the gospel than he was in the back of the boat in the midst of the storm. Deliverance in the boat meant meant that they escaped unharmed. 
But deliverance in their lives, as I think we see here with Paul, came to mean faithfulness to Christ in all circumstances. Peace for the disciples, in in our case, Paul was not based upon external circumstances, but rooted in the power and goodness of God coupled with their faith of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can do whatever you want to me. You cannot thwart God's plan. When we consider that progression in the disciples' lives, what is it that needs to occur in our lives that we would respond more like the latter and not the former way of living? How is it that we face death or even persecution or social stigma for our faith with fidelity? And honestly, I don't, I don't have a cookie-cutter answer. A lot of times I read the scriptures and I come up with more questions than definitive answers. But one of the commentaries that I was reading shared the story of, of Mehdi Debaj. He was an Iranian national who converted to Christianity, and he was charged by the Iranian government with apostasy, giving up of faith, the punishment of which was death. And so Mehdi waited in prison for 10 years before his case went to trial, and when he provided his defense, it included these words, and I hope they can inspire us this morning. He says, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. This is his defense to the Iranian uh, judicial system. The result of the trial, the court found Mehdi guilty and he was sentenced to execution. I mean, at this point in time, the U.S. State Department, some other Western entities intervened and they actually helped to arrange a release for Mehdi. But uh, seven months later, he was found dead in a Tehran park under suspicious circumstances. So this saint spent nearly all of his Christian life suffering in prison. And when provisions seemed to come, promising his release, it was likely that he was attacked by Iranian vigilantes thinking that they were doing Allah's will by putting to death this traitor. I tell you, I've walked with Jesus longer than those 10 years that Mehdi did. But I cannot say with certainty how I'd respond if I was in his same position. I I know how I would like to respond. But I can say this that it wasn't Mehdi doing this upon his own power, that it's through the prayers of the saints. This is what we see from Paul in this section. It's through the prayers of the saints and the power of the Holy Spirit that Mehdi was able to remain steadfast in these trials. It's what led to Paul's deliverance. And I believe that this is what can guide us as well, to strengthen, uh, uh, bolster us, to be able to stay firm and bold in our faith. I mean, this morning we've encountered some very sobering stories, stories of saints who were willing to hold their lives loosely for the gospel, hold their reputations loosely for the gospel. Before we even got to the sermon, we talked about Horatio Spafford, 
We started with Jim Elliott and the four additional missionaries who were killed for their faith in Ecuador. We saw Paul languishing in prison, recognizing that the end of this might be his execution. Concluded with Mehdi Dibaj, a martyr for his faith. In each of these threads, or each of these cases, the common thread was not just death for the gospel, but the advancement of it. There's an old saying by the early church father, Tertullian. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Amid, I mean, they they were heavily persecuted in those first few centuries. Amid death and threats of death, the church did not cower, it did not wilt, but grew with power and with authority. And I know that this might be foreign to our everyday experiences and the safety of American pluralism, but we can still take encouragement from these giants of the faith. They held their lives loosely, willing to sacrifice power, reputation, even life, for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and proclaiming His way. So while we might have some difficulty connecting precisely, you know, the one-to-one correspondence with Paul, there are still ways we can reflect on Paul's comments. So here's a few questions I got for you. And again, I'll put them on Facebook. I'll put them on um, uh, the website um, tomorrow. And so for us to, re- to focus on. So the first is this, and I asked this question early in the sermon. Do we rejoice in the gospel proclamations? Do you rejoice in the gospel proclamations of your rivals? When we make the gospel or the church about us, it's easy to get caught up in the spirit of competition. There's a time in the Gospels we see this very thing happen, right? The disciples are trying to get Jesus to stop uh, some folks who were casting out demons in Jesus' name, but they weren't part of the crew. They're not with us, Jesus. And that's when Jesus said, you know, if they're not, the one who is not against us is for us. Do we rejoice in the advancement of the Gospel regardless of who is sharing it? Are we able to kind of check our reputation, check our pride at the door and celebrate? Because that's what Paul does. And second is this. Who are those that you look to as an inspiration to give you boldness in the gospel, even if it might yield your own suffering? Suffering is going to come. It's a part of life. Sometimes by being more vocal about the gospel, we bring suffering upon us. Maybe it's one of the stories that I shared this morning. You know, who is it you go to? Maybe it's a severe story like a martyrdom, but maybe it's just a peer who stands up for his or her faith under social scrutiny. It's important for us. This is why one of the reasons that community is important, because we all have different gifts. Someone might be more bold like Paul out there that kind of helps rile me up, but there might be other elements that I have strength that, you know, someone like Paul would would be able to rely on. We need others to encourage us. And it's helpful for us to look into those who are living those li- that, that life of living the gospel out. So let us trust the prayers of the saints and the powers of the Holy Spirit to form us into the type of people, the type of Christians that we've observed this morning. So if you would join me in prayer. Lord, this morning is a very sober reality a place where, like so many other places in your word, I feel like I fail, I fall woefully um, incomplete and inadequate. Thank you for the lesson and the example of those who have gone before us to remind us of what humility looks like, 
what putting our life to live as Christ, uh, what that models, that modeled for us, God. Lord, may we learn the joy, not necessarily happiness, but joy of serving you and serving one another, holding our life, our power, our reputation loosely for the sake of your gospel. It's in that power of Jesus we pray. Amen.